If you have your Bible this morning, open up to Hebrews chapter 1. Soon your Bible will flop open to Hebrews all by itself because we will have been in it for so long. Let me give you a big fancy title this morning and introduce some words that, that maybe you and I don't have a huge value for, but Hebrews is going to educate us in big words, big theological words that we're going to get introduced to, and you're going to see how important they are. So the title of the message today is The Relevance of Christology. And that word relevant we get, which I think is, quite honestly, it's hard to find relevance today. Our our lives are so narrow, they're so personal, they're so constructed around the ideas that are in our back pocket. Uh, How to get relevant in anybody's life? How do you become relevant in someone's life? And that's all getting harder and harder and harder. And it can feel like, you know, has the Bible got something relevant to say to your life, your modern life, your way of doing thing life today that gets reinforced as you watch social media and you watch things get presented in our world and and they stand things up. Do those things turn around and say, amen? Yeah. Celebrate stuff that's in the word of God. Because when the culture, when the world we live in doesn't do that, this starts to feel irrelevant. All right. So, but is it? Just because it feels that way in our culture, is it irrelevant? Or is it saying the most important things that you and I could ever hear? And we might need to learn to tune into it differently. So big words like Christology are important. And that's what we're going to learn about as we look at a big chunk of Hebrews chapter 1, even a little bit in the Hebrews chapter 2. John Newton, some of you would know him most famously as the writer of Amazing Grace. Some of you, if you study history, would know him as a former slave trader who came to know Christ and became a a force in a a time, 1700s, when there was not a popular movement to undo slavery in this world. But he went from being a slave trader to one who recognized by the grace of God, this is a problem, and began to push back in our world. But this writer of Amazing Grace says something profound here in this poem. I'm not sure it was a hymn or not, but it's a poem. He says, what think ye of Christ? That's the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. A lot being said right there. I love those two words because they describe deep things about us, our state and our scheme, right? Our state, I wrote this in your outline there if you've got a handout. Our state is, is just the sum of our life experience. It's, it's your physical, mental, and emotional sense of well-being, right? It's, it's your sense of peace and contentment and identity and self-definition. Just kind of being at peace with who you are. That's your state, right? And we want to move our state into that place. You know, if your state is ruffled and agitated and not in a good place, we want to do something to move it to a place where, hey, I'm okay. I'm in a good place. That's what we mean by that. We're describing our state. But to get our state to that place, we need a scheme. We need a a method, right? Your scheme is your approach, your strategy to sustain your inner and outer health and meaning, your passions, your patterns, your people, 
your projects. Right? What are you working on right now? Now, what's your project right now? Maybe you've gone back to school. Maybe you're in school. Maybe you've bought a house. You've got a renovation thing going on right now. Uh, maybe you're standing up something for the summer for your grandkids, right? You've got a scheme. You've got a project that you're working on, and you want that to bring your life to a good place. All of us are doing that. Oz Guinness is an interesting writer. Some of you guys, if you attended Alpha long enough ago, I used to quote Oz in the Alpha course. He says this. He says, most of us feel immortal in our teens and 20s, then move through life so fast in our 30s and 40s that we lose sight of the journey and think only of our careers or maybe just our families or something right on top of us. Even in our 50s, we barely hear the roar of the rapids several bends down river. Have you awakened to the journey of life? Or are you among those drifting down the years? Are you among those so caught up on, listen, the project of themselves that they choose not to hear the flow of time? Are you living an examined life? Or are you living in the hand-me-down ideas of others? You know, to some degree, uh, probably none of us should be so proud as to just kind of, well, not me, no, <laughs> not me. Um, I know I am living in the hand-me-down of ideas of others. I am. And whether or not I discern it is really the question. But all of us are influenced by things, right? And here would be my... my my influence scheme, right? And probably yours overlaps with this. Uh, the American suburb. That's what I grew up in. It helped inform my scheme. Part 20th century and now part 21st century. Part affirmations and applause, right? I've had people in my life who frowned on things and who applauded other things, made a big deal about this and kind of drew me toward that, began to help me to form a scheme. Part personality, and talent discovery. There are just things about yourself. You, you've got a personality. It's not like everybody else's. You've got talents. That when you use those talents, you, 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 there's a sense of fulfillment in that. And there's some reward and gain. My scheme is part peer and people persuasion. People have influenced me with their ideas. It's part borrowed ideas. It's part ancestry. It's part pop culture. Right? All that stuff is informing your scheme and my scheme as well. When we come to Hebrews, remember our audience. Our audience in Hebrews, we kind of find the author interacting with a group of people whose lives, the wheels are coming off their life. And life has gotten harder and harder and harder. So their state is not good. They're not in a good place. And what the writer does in Hebrews is he raises the issue of your scheme. He wants to talk to you about how you trying to get to a better place. What are you doing to get there? How are you going to fix the way life feels right now? You don't like the way it feels? How are you going to fix that and get yourself to a better state? Well, that's what he's trying to do here. And quite honestly, where he starts gives away the fact that he very much agrees with Mr. Newton. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. So remember, we started Hebrews by starting in chapter 12, because there's a moment there where the, the Holy Spirit's inspiring this writer to say, hey, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us, right? Let us do life, this journey of life. Hey, let's, let's run it with endurance. And then the next thing he's going to say 
is consider Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Before the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He ran his race. Consider him. This book wants to say that to us multiple times. It wants to tell you, consider him. As you go to construct your scheme, consider him. Right? That's what's being laid out here. But So what do you want us to consider? What do you want us to hear when we go to consider Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to pick up today. Look in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 through 3, and then I'm going to pick up a bunch of pieces that are in chapter 1 and chapter 2 just to, to fill in some of this consideration. What would you like us to think about? And can I just tell you quite honestly, you're not going to see some of this stuff in your easily accessible verse of the day, uh, daily little uh, devotional reading. This is not going to make their headlines, but this is what the common folk in the first century of Hebrews who had less education than you and I do, who didn't have nearly the access to the volume of information about God that we have studied, this is what he thought they needed to know. I'm I'm starting to realize as I read the Bible, maybe we've dumbed down life so terribly to where, hey, can I just give you something that barely means anything? Can you absorb that? But the Bible turns around and says, how about some really big words like Christology? Right, well, here's what you get. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This son is the heir of all things, through whom also... He created the world. And by the way, he, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Oh, and he also, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. A- after making purification for sins, he did that. He made purifications for sins. He then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I could keep going here. And in some ways, the the rest of chapter one into chapter two, keep saying, oh, he's this and oh, he's that. And oh, he's this. And we're going to pick up some of that. I'm going to gather them, but I'm going to gather them under those six headings right there. And I'm going to do it quickly. I think Uh, these are, these are big words and there's little pieces that are scattered that are almost like, Hey, by the way, This is reflected in this about him as well. And this is reflected in this about him as well. So I'm going to gather chapters one and two a little bit into these headings underneath them, right? So let me just move through these six things that are in these first three verses. But remember, we're being asked to consider something. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Oh, but as you go to run your race, as you go to do the journey of life, as you go to... Create your scheme on how you're going to get yourself to a better state. Consider him. Every day of your life. Every moment you make a decision. Every day. Consider him. All right, well, what do you want me to consider? Well, consider this. He is the heir of everything. All things. That word heir, it means to be the owner. The possessor. The allotted one. He has the rightful deed. The universe that exists, everything that exists, 
he rightly owns. It all reports back to him. Remember, we, we, we saw last week the, the landowner who sent his son. He sent messengers to the vineyard that he... Remember, he's the owner, but there's some, some squatters on the land that he owns who are working the land. Remember, if you don't come around, you may not have seen the owner, but there was activity going on in the vineyard and there was people working it there. That's, that's what earth looks like. Hey, where's the owner? It looks like some of you guys own this place. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. There's no owners in this room. You recognize there's not an owner of anything in this room? I, I know you're, you got your name on your mortgage and you pay taxes and you've got some stuff going on. Your car says it belongs to you, etc. The owner of everything is in this verse. And the universe recognizes it, right? So you find these little reinforcements here. In verse four, you're gonna find out that he is, he is, this heir, he is superior to the angels. Now, I'm not sure exactly why. Why'd you, why'd you choose angels to be the first thing to talk about in the book of Hebrews? Well, I think part of it is because, can you think of a being greater than ourselves? Can you think of something big and powerful and scary? Something that makes you go, whoa. Maybe when you grew up watching horror movies and there was always some creepy thing out there. There was the boogeyman. There was something bad. All that stuff got your attention, didn't you, when you were a kid? Because you knew you were vulnerable to that. So I'm not sure if the writer doesn't say, hey, uh, what's the most powerful being you can think of? The angels. There's this whole group of beings out there that they kind of freak us out a little bit because they've got powers we don't have and they do stuff that's... It captures our attention. Well, Jesus gets introduced. Oh, he's greater than them. But I don't know if you're a, a, a Marvel uh, movie watcher. There's a moment in the, the progression of the, the Marvel movies about the Avengers where, you know, they're just doing life and doing life and episode after episode after episode. And, and it's all kind of slowly coming together to make you realize all the bad stuff that's been happening. Uh, it's not random. You, you, you think it's random. You, know, you watch Iron Man. You watch this one, that one. And there's this random evil taking place. There's another random evil. There's a random character over here and another one over here. And you get far enough into the series and you realize all the evil goes back to one person, one guy in the universe. And they get introduced to him. His name is Thanos. And up until this moment, when you're starting to get introduced to this guy, it's all becoming clear. And the guy who makes it clear is the Hulk. And the Hulk has always been the guy along the way. Nobody can beat up the Hulk. Nobody. The Hulk, you can shoot him. You can set him on fire. You can drop him from outer space. It doesn't matter what you do to him. He's, he's like Gumby on steroids. He just bounces back into shape. Here I am again. And he gets in a fight with Thanos. And Thanos beats the tar out of him. And he comes back to Earth in a panic. And he freaks out. And... This green being who's not as scared of anything turns around and says, Thanos is coming. And he's scared to death. Can, can I tell you that's how the angels speak of the Son of God? They recognize everything is hardwired back into him. Everything comes from him. Take the most scary, powerful being you can find and have a conversation with an angel. And they would be in dread and in awe of this one. Verse 5 says, you are my son. 
there is a unique connection between the person of Jesus Christ and the Father that exists nowhere else. There's no other being that has that kind of a connection. And in verse 6, it says, All God's angels worship Him. All of these beings worship Him. If you, if you wanted to do some kind of a what's trending in the world of, hey, what are people worshiping? And you wanted to tech the only other intelligent beings described in the Bible besides human beings, right? Animals, plants, they're not described this way. They are a reflection of the creativity and the glory of God. I don't know that they qualify to say they're worshiping. Although all creation is said to worship God. It, it orients back toward him in an honoring way. The other intelligent beings who can speak and write and understand angels. You want to know who they're all trending toward? All God's angels worship him. Right? That's what you get in this. He's the heir of all things. Everything reports back to him. And then he says, consider that he created the world. When you go to do life and stand up your scheme, remember this one, he created the world. In verse 10, it says, he laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning. The heavens are the work of his hands. Right? So I think I wrote in your outline there, consider, maybe I didn't, all things that exist, their design, their details, their intentions originate in God, in Jesus Christ. He is the originator of why everything exists and what was it designed for and what's it supposed to do? So when you and I are just daily doing life and we're trying to figure out what do I do next and what's this thing over here for? This, this thing called a relationship, this thing called uh, productive activity, you know, whatever it is in your life that's got your attention, what is this thing? You know, it's appropriate if you want to figure out what it is to ask the one who created it. He created the world. Hey, I know you're busy. Could, could I just ask you, what did you have in mind about this? What am I supposed to do with this? Oh, and by the way, now that I've got you, what's up with this thing over here? And, and can I just, this seems broke. It doesn't seem to be working right. What, what were you thinking that was supposed to be doing? When you and I go to do life, isn't that what we're doing? You're going to hit problematic moments. You're going to get in a relationship and it's going to go sideways and it's going to stop rewarding you, stop making you feel a certain way. And you're going to ask a question. Is it supposed to feel this way? And you're going to need the one who designed it to tell you. It's, no, it's not supposed to feel that way. It was designed for this. But can I just tell you that the world fell and sin came in. But the good news is I am reclaiming everything. And I am restoring this to what I originally had in mind. But how do you know what originally anything was supposed to be? Unless you know Jesus Christ who created the world. He's a big deal, isn't he? Consider this. Now, this is practical stuff. I know this is heady stuff. This is Christology. Oh my goodness, this is a big word. But when you and I go to do life, this is what we're doing every day. We stare at something of God's creation and say, what do I do with this? What kind of label do I put on this? What kind of label do I put on me? 
hey, you know, I don't feel the same way about me today that I did five years ago. Do I relabel? Should I do that? Because, man, it feels like I should. And then I lift my eyes up to a world around me that's relabeling everything. Well, they seem to be doing it. The, the person in the desk next to me at school relabeled. What did they do before you get too weird in this? What did they do? They stared at their life. They said, my life doesn't feel right. I'm, I'm just disturbed and uncomfortable. I, I, I want to solve this sense of disconnect and discord. I'm going to relabel me. I'm no longer this. I'm now this. Wouldn't it be a better idea if you just stopped in that moment and you asked the creator, hey, what did you have in mind? Because it doesn't feel like it's going right. He will compassionately interact with the fact that you don't feel like it's going right. He gets that. The world has fallen. He's kind of not expecting it to feel right. But then he may turn around and explain to you, this is how you get restored to the purpose I had for you. Well, how do I know? Well, I go to him because he created the world. He was the one who laid all the foundations, right? Consider he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, how many guys get up in the morning and you go to plan your day and fill in your planner and that phrase is what guides you? He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. This person, this God-man, Jesus Christ. Then in verse 8, it says, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who is this being we're talking about, this Jesus Christ? Who is he? He is God. Your throne, O God. The Bible refers and speaks to Jesus Christ as he is God. Now, don't tamper with that. What an insult to call him anything but that. He is the exact, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint because he is God. That's why that's true about him, which means he doesn't belong in a conversation along with Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or Confucius or, or some of you guys come from backgrounds, come, you come from a Jehovah Witness background. Can I just tell you, the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses is not this Jesus. They borrowed a label and called something else the Jesus that's in the Bible. The Jesus in Jehovah Witness is a created being. The Jesus in the scriptures, according to Hebrews, is God himself. Yeah, but, he's, yeah, but we call it Jesus. Yeah. I could call myself a boiled egg. I'm not. Last time I checked. but So you come along as a religious figure. Uh, there's a Jesus in Mormonism. Just because they took the letter J and put it next to the letter E and put it next to the letter S, and at the end of that you say Jesus, does not mean that Jesus is this Jesus. Don't fall for that. Don't be confused by that. Well, you use the same label, and there's a lot of history here. He's not the same Jesus. The Jesus in this Bible, 
He's God himself. He's the exact representation of the glory of God in human form. That's what you're seeing. Consider him. Verse 9, chapter 1 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He is that. Jesus Christ is that. This glorious, radiant God is that. He is a lover of righteousness and a hater of wickedness. Now I'm accentuating that because it irritates the common philosophy of man who refuses to label as a good God, a God who has an ability to have an opinion much less, and listen, I'm not making this up, right? I may be loud about it, but it's in the Bible. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The Jesus Christ of the Bible loves righteousness, which means there is a thing called righteousness. And everything that's righteous, he loves. And he hates wickedness, which means whatever falls under the wickedness umbrella He's not okay with. Worse than not okay with, he hates it. He is passionately opposed to it. He will seek its destruction completely in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no wickedness. It's not like he's going to like alter the wickedness a little bit, let it keep existing. He's going to annihilate it completely. That's the Jesus in scripture. Question. Is your scheme, right? Remember, your scheme is your way to get to a better state of existence. Is your, is your scheme informed by what Christ loves and hates? The stuff that you are loving yourself, prizing, holding up, applauding, supporting, making noise about telling other people, look at that. Oh, is that stuff... That's informing your scheme. Are are you applauding the right stuff? Are you valuing before other people the stuff that Jesus loves? Or, Or are you confusing the image of God in you by applauding and loving what he would call wickedness? Hey, when I go to do life, This is pertinent, isn't it? This matters. Let me tell you what, you know, hey, if we're talking principles and we're talking governmental decisions and we're talking Hollywood, everybody, every Christian kind of like, yeah, yeah, bring it, bro. Bring it. Yeah, that's right, man. There's some people out there that need to know that's wicked, buddy. Yeah. All right, let me just ask you a, a more Christianized question. In terms of the love hate of the son of God. Does Jesus Christ love the way you feel and treat people in your life? When it comes to the attitudes that are inside of you towards other people, because Christians, it's amazing. Christians can agree on political ideas and outright behavioral issues while at the same time their heart is at odds with this. There are things 
about relating to other people that Jesus loves. And there are things about relating to other people that Jesus hates. So when you go to do your scheme and make your plans, who he is in this informs a lot about you, doesn't it? Is it okay that you go one more day without fixing that? Addressing that issue, extending some kind of forgiveness and loving kindness towards somebody that you feel self-justified in not giving it to them? Can you remember the Jesus that you claim to follow? He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And I think unforgiveness and bitterness would fall under the category of wickedness if I open my Bible and read it a little bit. But we kind of get okay with that, especially living in a cancel culture world. It feels like, hey, if you ever did anything wrong against me, I have the right to not make things right. I have the right to do that. Okay. You got reminded this morning, the Savior you claim is yours. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. I might need to be reminded of that. Then it goes on and says, verse 12 in chapter 1, this Christ, you are the same. You are the same the same. He doesn't change, which means there's not like an old definition of righteousness and a new one, nor is there an old definition for wickedness and a new one. How many guys have heard the phrase under the sneer of, it's so puritanical. Oh, please. That's so old fashioned. Be careful what you do with that label. Your clothing can be old-fashioned because it's got way too much polyester in it, you know. Your color scheme in your home can be old-fashioned and that, oh my, that looks like 1978 avocado. Um, When it comes to righteousness and wickedness, it doesn't work that way. Righteousness and wickedness have to do with the radiance of the glory of God. It has to do with the nature of God. It doesn't trend. Right? There, you can't be on, quote, the wrong side of history when it comes to righteousness. It doesn't move that way and get reshaped. So it's not like, oh, well, well, that was wicked back when your grandmother was, yeah, that was wicked then. But come on, man, get with it. It's modern. It's today. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did wickedness change? Well, it kind of feels like it did in our world, doesn't it? You are the same. You don't change. So the righteous God who was righteous a thousand years ago when life was done very, very differently in a culture on the other side of the world who spoke a different language, etc., was still involved with righteousness. And you pick that up and you put it in our world and you don't say, I dismiss all that because these people were walking around in sandals and didn't have anything modern going on in their life and not half of them couldn't read and they were ignorant. Wait, do you think righteousness emerged when you got a college degree? All of a sudden, there's a clear righteousness now. No, the righteousness is a reflection of the radiance and the glory of God. So it never changes. This is where the church has has messed up generationally. It's messed up because older generations tend to turn their clothing styles into righteousness and then impose their clothing styles on a younger generation. Clothing styles aren't a matter of righteousness. And the church makes a massive mistake when it does that because it alienates people on the basis of the wrong stuff. Is there anything righteous about clothing? 
Yes, there is. But it's not in color schemes and whether polka dots can be worn with stripes. I know that that's a sin, right? Isn't it? Even in the Bible, if you wear polka dots with stripes. There are, there can be sinful things about clothing, but be careful. See, this is where the church doesn't do itself a favor when it interferes with a good biblical definition of righteousness and imposes its own human ideas. Then it falls prey to the same ideas that the world does. And the world turns around and says, oh, well, that doesn't count anymore. That's old. That's back then. Be careful that you're not dismissing things that the Bible actually calls righteous or wicked. And the last thing it says under this heading, verse 12, your years will have no end. This Jesus Christ, his years will have no end. And it's important for us theologically to say, hey, Jesus Christ is eternal. He'll have no end. But, but it's, it's more than that. When you go to do your scheme and put your trust somewhere, for him to have no end, his years will have no end, means there is nothing in the universe that can overthrow who he is. That's what that means. His years can't end and they can't be ended by anybody. There's no force out there that's going to suddenly flip Jesus and make him subservient to something else. Or maybe bring him to an end, bring his reign to an end, bring his existence to an end. Can't happen. The Jesus you and I are trusting can't happen. Consider that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does that mean? Well, if he's upholding the universe, he didn't just create the world. He's upholding it right now. He is actively causing existence to exist. He is managing all the details of our existence. And by the word of his power, it kind of captures the imagery in scripture of, of a king who sits on the throne who sits on and, he, and by the word, he just decrees things and the kingdom comes in line. He just says things and the kingdom obeys him. In verse eight, it says, your throne is forever and ever. Right now, maybe I don't wake up in the morning and think I should. There's a throne in the universe. When I go to do my scheme, there is a throne in the universe. There's one seated on the throne. Decisions are being made from the throne. There's power in the throne. There's protocols in the throne that the ruler of the universe sits on that throne and he makes decisions. And if you just kind of read casually even through the Bible, you know, you had those moments where, you know, Job chapter one, Satan comes before the throne of God. Where have you been? Question. And roaming about the earth and walking to and fro. But now he's having a different moment. Now he is before God. He has come before God. And there's places in the Old Testament where you get descriptions of what's going on in this before God. And you have God having a conversation with a heavenly council as he's going to make decisions. He's talking things out with angelic beings in terms of his strategy of what's going to happen next and how he's going to accomplish it. That's that's what's going on. There's a throne in heaven that makes decisions about things. It's not just what you learned when you were a kid in the Our Father, where you pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that prayer? It, 
It's referring to the throne and the king who sits on it, who makes decisions about the universe. Your kingdom, come here. And your will be done. The will you've been discussing up there in heaven that we don't know anything about, but you've been discussing the strategy behind it. Let that be done here on earth as it is in heaven, as you already have decided to do in heaven. Let that go on here on earth. That's this throne. And that's, consider him who sits on that throne. Verse, chapter 2, verse 8, you can hear this phrase. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's what you did. It was like a footstool for the king. Just put it under his feet. He's got all this power and all this authority. Putting everything. His power is universal. Everything is under his feet. Everything is under his feet. When you go to do life. And you wake up and you're, you're planning and thinking and scheming this week and some stuff isn't matching up. It's going sideways. It doesn't feel right. It looks like it's headed for catastrophe. Those things advertise nobody's in control of this. This, this is a sickness that nobody's got any handles on it. This is a financial crisis. No one, no one knows about this. It can't be stopped. But wait, 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 wait. Consider him. He's put everything in subjection under his feet. Everything. So that moment you're about to have this week, it's subjected to him, the king. And then we get introduced to something that's been playing in the background that we didn't know about and we'll unpack this when we get to it. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Through death, he, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life long slavery. I can't wait to unpack that one when we get to it. There's this little thing running in the background that every person in this room's got this fear thing operating in them. And it's, it's fear of a lot of stuff, but when you pull on the extension cord long enough and you'll find this light in this area and this light in this area of your life and another light over here and one that kind of went dim after you got out of your 30s and then another one came along when you turned 68, right? All these lights of fear that are in you and you go all the way back to it, you're going to find it's plugged into the fear of death. And the devil has had his hands all over that all of your life. How are you going to get rid of that? How are you going to scheme your way out of that? How about if he destroys that for you? What if the one you're trusting in, how about your Christology, the one you trust includes the destroyer of that kind of fear in the hands of that kind of devil? Because you can't do that. Yeah, I just tell you, search your whole life. You'll never find where that cord is plugged into. Search your whole life. None of us are smart enough. And you'll never be able to overcome that devil. He can and he does. And then he does something here. Consider that this is, you know, this is top issues. The top issues about this God we're considering is consider he made purification for our sins. He made purification. He's purified our existence from our sins. Now, is that a big deal when you go to stand up your plans and schemes for this week? Can I just tell you for most of us, it's kind of not. It's, it's the mission he was on in coming to planet Earth. But it's sort of like, yeah, but I got other stuff, man. Yeah, I know there's the atonement and all that bloodshed stuff. Yeah, I know, I, I know that's important. But can you just talk to me about what I'm worried about right now? 
Right? That's kind of the way our lives and our conversations feel. Top issue, top issue of this one that we've entrusted our, ourselves to is that he purifies us from our sins. And why is that a big deal? Who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? Who shall come near to this God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The problem is you and I could dip our hands in muck and grime and something disgusting and then wash our other hand with that. That's what we've got. All of our righteousness is its filthy rags, the Bible says. So you don't have the ability to create clean hands. We don't have the ability to do it. But he does. Because he came and he made purification for our sins. So what does that do for me this week? It gives me access to this God. I can get near him. I can pray. I can receive something. He can affect my life. He is happy to draw near to me as I draw near to him. What made that possible? Some idea that, well, I'm an American and everybody gets to vote. So God's got to listen to me too. Or that's not fair. You, what, you, you have a Christology of fairness? Or, or this is what modern man does. My life hurts and it's full of pain right now. And somehow that God's responsible. So he owes me. He owes me. You better believe you better show up and do something in my life. Can can I just tell you, stupid doesn't play with God. That's just terribly uninformed. And listen, I'm not saying that out of the lack of sympathy for my own life that feels like, does it have to be this way? I don't like this. This is excruciating. But I can't bring that to God as though, and you're in the wrong and you owe me. So you better come down here and get near me. Uh, My nearness to God is based on the fact that Jesus Christ came and purified me so that I could stand before him is what he did that made this possible. Can can I tell you another reason why this doesn't show up on our radar? You know, needing a savior gets educated by needing to know how sinful you are. The second you get out of touch with your own sin, you will devalue a savior. You don't really need him, right? And you and I live in a world that has booted sin out the window. It's like it just doesn't even exist anymore. It's all about personal preference. It's all about what's right for you. There is no objective voice in modern man's existence that comes in and says, that's right and that's wrong. That's sinful. That's okay. That's not okay. It's not welcomed. And you and I have been taught, we've been taught, there's kind of like a, you know, you could listen to the Bible, hundreds of sins, but there's only like a few that matter today. Racism matters, right? It's, that's, it's okay for you to feel like that's wrong. Civil rights, that's wrong. People who abuse power, anybody who abuses power, or the mere fact that I can suspect that you're probably abusing power because you're a person with power. Those things are in, absolutely not. Intolerance is a sin. The fact that you're not tolerating somebody else wanting to do something different than the way you would have done it. No, no, that's not acceptable. But quite honestly, I'm going to start running out of ideas here. How many other things ever get before you that are sin, that get people to rise up in anger against it? There are Bible passages all over the place that pick up things like greed, selfishness. How about the word idolatry? 
I, I, know, I know that we, we think that some form of human crisis is the mother of all sins, the worst thing that could ever happen. Can I tell you, in the Bible, the worst sin in the Bible is idolatry. Anything that forces God to become less in your life is the most horrible thing happening in the universe. But that doesn't even make the headlines anymore, right? God can be irrelevant, disrespected, not looked to, not trusted in. Nobody's bothered by that. Nobody's bringing that up even. So if you don't know just how corrupt you really are and how sinful you really are, you don't kind of need a savior. And so this idea that he came and made purification for our sins, well, I'm not racist. I get along with most people and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty cool with people doing it. It's like you got the wrong list. If you had a real list of sin, I might really need to be purified. And this might be a celebration moment. I might sing my guts out when I come in this place to hear I have been purified. I get to come before God now. That's what's in Christology. Last thing, consider he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down. Now, remember when you read the rest of the little context here, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So he, he goes from the throne to being a human being. Just one of us, a little lower than the angels, the Bible says. What was that all about? Well, that was the incarnation. That was the mission for him to come to earth, live a perfect human life, and then take the punishment of our sin upon himself that a human being had to pay for. Not an angel. Nobody else could pay for human sin, but a human being. So he had to become a human being, and he did. And he lived his life, and the judgment of God fell on him as sin. My sin, your sin was placed on him. And God pronounced his acceptance and raising him from the dead and ascending him back to sit on his throne once again. Job done. He sat down because it's finished. What I had to do is done. And he sits down. That, that, does that mean anything to you and me? Oh my gosh. There are things you and I are doing that are still trying to do what he did for us. That might need to get unpacked on another date. So then we get to, all right, so that's, there's Hebrews 1 into Hebrews 2. And then you get to Hebrews 3 and you get this. Therefore, right, whenever you see that word, you guys remember? When you see a therefore, you got to see what it's there for, right? It's trying to grab all these two chapters and pull it into this moment. Therefore, holy brothers... You guys who are tempted to quit, who are struggling, can't make sense of life, you guys, you share in a heavenly calling. Consider, right, what I just presented to you. Consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest of our confession, the, the reason behind our scheme, the central figure to the things that we do in life to get us to a better place. Consider him. I wrote this in your outline. When Hebrews stands amidst the noise and the entanglements of our life race and says, look to Jesus, consider him. These, what we just did, these are the unique and defining descriptions provided for us to consider. These define glory, good, and goals, trouble, and need, and value, and fear. 
Those verses we just visited define those categories of our lives. They teach us what really to run away from and what not to be afraid of, don't they? Based on who he is. These describe where real treasure and real trouble are located in our lives. These inform our scheme. Whatever we're trying to use to get us to a better place. So when the Bible says consider Jesus, it's just giving you an invitation to do Christology. That big theological word, Christology. You just got to invite, consider Jesus. Not the, not the hallmark Jesus, the biblical Jesus. The one that's got big words associated with him, like glory and things that reflect what he did. And purification of sins. Consider that Jesus. When you go to do life, those things are all relevant to us. Francis Schaeffer wrote years ago, he says, I've come to the point, wrote Francis Schaeffer in 1968, where when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic Jesus and his work, I listen carefully because I have, with sorrow, become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any other word in the modern world. The word is used as a contentless banner. There's no rational scriptural content to which to test it. Increasingly over the past few years, the word Jesus separated from the content of the scriptures has been the enemy of the Jesus of history. The Jesus who died and rose and is coming again and who is the eternal son of God. Modern ideas are at odds with that Jesus, but they still want to use the word Jesus. J.I. Packer says, Dr. Schaefer's protest against allowing the name Jesus to become a non-defined symbol, a connotation word in a world of semantic mysticism is timely. And this is J.I. Packer saying that in 1977. He had no idea what was coming. The only real Jesus Christ is the Christ of New Testament history and theology. And that, by parting company with the New Testament, we do not find him, but only lose him. Some of you guys, if you've watched the news, you got a fresh example of this. In the last month, somebody wrote a creed that came as a mimic of the Apostles' Creed. This is a religious figure. This person leads a church and would go on to read this creed to their church. It's called the Sparkle Creed. And it came from the person speaking into their Siri microphone looking for the Apostles' Creed. And Siri misunderstood what they said. And responded not to the Apostles' Creed, but to the Sparkle Creed. And it caught this person's attention and thought, yeah, that's good. And so they took this creed, historically, that sums up a Christological creed like the Apostles' Creed, which says this. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sitteth at the right hand of the God, 
the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This person thought, creed needs an update. One that reflects the way we think now. Here's the sparkle creed. Make sure if you're watching online and you ever turn around and say, Keith Collins, this pastor in New Orleans, read the sparkle creed in his church. Make sure you put it in context before you repeat that. (laughs) Just just a suggestion, please. (laughs) Here's the sparkle creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit, called the Holy Spirit, who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud, and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. This is so extreme that it gets your attention for everything that's subtle. It is an attempt to use what is relevant to people and impose it upon God's relevance to them. It doesn't sound like the Apostles' Creed, does it? It doesn't sound like Hebrews, does it? But it sounds relevant. It sounds like our world today. It sounds like the talking points of people It sounds like somehow God should be in these categories in some kind of a way. And we're just bored with this Christology. So can we use something really important? Can we talk about God in light of what's really important? That's what you get. But remember, the Bible says this to humanity long ago. And in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. And now he has spoken to us through his son. You remember God speaking through the prophet? When I got to the end, I almost wanted to throw up. You dared to use the word glorious? You dared to use that word? I believe glorious God. You use the word that comes from glory? He is the radiance of his glory. Do you remember Moses? Moses had encounters with God. He stood on the side of a mountain and he said, God, show me your glory. And do you remember God showed him his glory? He hid him. He said, dude, I'm, I'm going to pass by you so fast and you're going to barely even get a glimpse of me. And he pronounced things in his presence as it passed by. The Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, full of mercy, compassionate. And then he goes on and says, but visiting the sins and the iniquities of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation who does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. That's how God explained his glory to Moses in an instant. The reason why the son of God is who he is is because he's here to receive the wrath of God on our behalf. 
That's no small thing. You can't write this creed and reinvent God. But isn't that exactly what most of us do? We adjust God just a little bit. He can't quite be this. He can't quite be that. Now, I know these are really vile categories. But can I, can I just humbly tell you, I got my own categories where I adjust God. I got my own creeds where I lower him and I make him less than who he really is. And I struggle to believe in the one who's in the Bible. I do that too. I got some creeds floating around in me. Let me give you one more freaky out thought here. Give me one more quote to you. Here's an interesting rewrite of God. It's a news story that came out, I think, maybe a week or two ago. You guys have heard of the people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA. All right. In PETA's AI overhauled creation account titled The Book, right? So AI is this strange thing you and I are learning to interact with, but you can feed in ideas to it and then ask it to write a story based on a group of ideas. And so the PETA folks took the Bible and its Genesis story and fed in some PETA theology on how to ethically treat animals and taught AI to combine those two things, right? So this is what it came up with. In PETA's AI overhauled creation account titled The Book, the terms beasts and creatures are exchanged for beings. And the clothing that God provides for Adam and Eve is made of hemp and bamboo instead of animal skin, according to the press release. Additionally, Petta's version of Genesis includes Abraham and Sarah adopting a dog named Herbie from a shelter. <laughs> that was important to know. Peta President Ingrid Newkirk explained a statement that they were just getting started and may rewrite more books of the Bible in the future. The Bible has long been used to justify all forms of oppression. So we've used chat GPT to make it clear that a loving God would never endorse exploitation or cruelty to animals. Can you imagine the shock of visiting the tabernacle in the temple? Where did all this blood come from? Oh, that's not blood. You spilled some paint earlier today. Newkirk said in the press release, it took God only six days to create the entire world. I'm not sure how you can believe that. You've adjusted everything else about God. But we realized it would take us years to rewrite the whole Bible, which is why we've started with just the first book. We asked an AI to create the book as a modern companion to the Bible. And we're pleased with the results because this complimentary piece provides readers with moral lessons relevant to the world of the 21st century. Righteousness and wickedness are always relevant, but they just haven't changed. They didn't await a new definition in the 21st century. All right, so as bizarre as that sounds, Seth, could you just come back? I don't know where Seth went. As bizarre as that sounds, 
when you start picking up terminologies that are in this quote, a loving God would never, a loving God would, that's how they got at that. They have their own modern understanding and version of the love of God. Do, do you have that too? Do you think God's not loving you when this is going on or that's going on? Because your idea about love doesn't match this idea about love. The shift in morals, the shift in emphasis of human behavior and human ideas. It's not just a peta problem, right? It might be a MAGA problem. Now I'm messing with you, aren't I? <laughs> see, little human ideas come along and they got little things in them that sound good. Like, and who wants to see a, a, a dog get beat up mercilessly? All right. I'm I'm cool. Don't do that. It's obnoxious. But then you take your peta idea and you turn it into the centerpiece of your life. And all of a sudden, that's who you are. And your identity is all wrapped up in these ethical treatment of animal ideas. And and, and you don't even notice this has become so important to you. You're rewriting the Bible to make ideas about God and morality match what's become so important in your own life. Can I just list some things that have done that to the church in our lifetime? Uh, MAGA has done that in our lifetime. Civil rights has done that in our lifetime. And everything starts to answer to it. So you, you got ideas in you in these categories. Hey, hey I'm, I'm not going to protest any of the vegans in the room here. I'm not going to protest you. I'm not going to eat what you want to eat either. But you do, like little issues like that can float up in your life to where they're they're so big, so big, to where they touch all kinds of other things. Being an American, democracy. We think democracy is in the Bible. We think the whole world, the whole world. Certainly God is for us because we're a democratic nation using force to overthrow a dictatorship on the other side of the world. God is with us. Why? Because God's democratic. Can you show me where God ever takes a vote? Where he ever takes cues from his fallen humanity and says, hey, you guys vote. What would y'all like? I'm noticing the vote thing doesn't work out real well. It's people choosing to do something unrighteous and unrighteous and unrighteous. But we let these things creep into our theology. Our Christology begins to change and morph because these ideas are pushing true Christianity to the edge. Can can we start here? Can we start with Hebrews? When you and I go to stand up our Christology, we go to stand up our scheme, we're trying to think through this week, what really matters for me? What's super valuable? What do I need to be freaked out about? What's going on in my life? Can you stop thumbing to figure out what that is? And read somebody's headline that's so absorbed and so protesting and so angry. Can, can you first figure out what is God angry about? What is God making noise about? What on earth did Jesus do, literally on earth, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, I'm done, it's finished. What was that? And what does it mean for me today? Listen, there is so much trouble out there, so much trouble out there that is causing you and I to stop celebrating so much that's true in here because we're just subscribing to the next thing after the next thing after the next thing. And maybe it's not weird like the pet of people rewriting the Bible, but it's something. 
So I want to just challenge you to do this, maybe in your devotional time this week. You can just do this in the first two chapters of Hebrews. Just read, sit down and read the first two chapters of Hebrews and include chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. What's the starting place for you to figure out your marriage problems, your parenting problems, your financial problems, your career problems, the things you're interested in, the goals that you're going to have, the stuff that you're afraid of and the things you're going to run to? Where do you start with that? Read a book on fear, finances, Wall Street. Consider Jesus. So at least you know where the boundaries are. You know what's really important. You know what really matters in your life. Consider Jesus. Let's stand up together. Just let the Lord just interact with your heart just for a moment. Long ago and in many ways, God spoke. In these last days, he has spoken to you. Spoken to you, Keith. Joe, Sarah, spoken to you in his son that we just heard described to us in the beginning of Hebrews. He has done all these significant things. He has done these weighty and important things. And maybe for you personally, the biggest things in your life sit in categories like, well, who am I? What am I going to do for a living? What should I major in in college? Should I marry this person or not? And those are all important issues. But God turns around and says, I'm speaking to you through my son. Have you considered him? You considered what he did, who he is, and what it means for you. At some point, when you consider Jesus, you have to come to a decision about him. And maybe you're here this morning and this is that moment for you. What are you going to do with this Jesus? Keep learning some things about him. That's good. Do that. But at some point, you have to decide what you're going to do in terms of how you will entrust yourself to him or not. Do you believe in who he is? Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you believe that he is the means through which any human being can be restored to God by having their sins forgiven, can now draw near to him? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's unique like no other person who ever existed in this world, in history, no other religious figure? He has done something for you that no one else could ever do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he sits on a throne and that he runs the universe every moment of it? Do you believe that? Would you like to entrust your life to him this morning? Would you like to consider there's no one like him? 
There's no one who can do for me what he has done for me. There's no one who can be to me who he is. All the angels are bowing down before him. The whole universe has figured out he's the one. Have you figured that out? This morning, what are you going to do with this Jesus? If you want to respond to him, give your life back to him. He created everything. We read that. He created everything. He wants your life back. He's the heir of all things. He owns everything. He owns the rights to your life. Whatever your life is right now, whatever will ever become, he owns it. So the best illustration I can present to you is, would you like to give up ownership to the one who actually does own you? Would you like to formally acknowledge to him that I am signing over the deed of my life? It's no longer mine, it's yours. Would you like to do that? Because at some point you have to do that. You have to decide. And if you'd like to do that right now, tell him in your own words, just tell him, just have a conversation in your head and your heart. Jesus, I, I do see who you are. And I believe in who you are. And I believe in what you did for me. And I see you are the heir of all things. Everything is rightly yours, including my life. My life is rightly yours. Everything about it. Every behavior, every thought, every plan, every hope, every relationship, it's, it's rightly yours. So today, Jesus, I've never done this, but today I give my life back to you. And I invite you, come give your life to me. Come bring your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me. Start a new day of my life. Take it wherever you want it to go. It's yours. You are my Lord and I will follow you the rest of my days. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that this morning and that was the first time you did that, can I just tell you eternity for you just changed. It just changed. Let me just ask you, we usually have a prayer team up here. The prayer team's going to come up. And, and maybe, maybe you just prayed that for the first time. Why don't you come tell one of the prayer team members, or you can come find me. I'll, I'll be up here for a little bit before I run into a guest reception in the bookstore. But come tell me you prayed that this morning for the first time. It's a major, major deal. What a big thing for Jesus to be in your life the way he longs to be for the rest of your days. Amen. Hey, if you're a guest and you're new, please join us for a few moments where we just get a chance to introduce ourselves to you in the guest reception. It's in the bookstore. Everybody else, there's lunch upstairs that you're welcome to come overpay ridiculously for. (laughs) Unlike, if you'll notice, maybe just consider this paying for all the meals that you've had for free here. (laughs) Just pile them all up and it's like, hey, here's a thousand dollars for the spaghetti plate. Here you go. Just a thought. Upstairs, bless the youth. See you guys next week.